Happy Friday, my good people, and welcome back to another episode of All Shades of Black Podcast. Your hosts, Bianca and Charlene here. And we are happy to be back here with you for this episode. Charlene, how you been these past couple of weeks? Uh, I don't know. These past couple of weeks, are, I mean, the past four months have just been a blur. I feel like one week is no different from the last. So just trying to survive out here in this pandemic. Yeah. I feel like that's been kind of like the response of most people these days. When you ask how's it going, oh, you know, just hanging in. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Literally, I was like, how is it Friday again? It was only just Friday. And how is this Friday different from the last yeah. Right. Seriously, the weeks are starting to go by really fast. <laughs> mm. Strangely. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I've been good. Oh, thanks for asking. <laughs> My bad. No, it's okay. <laughs> I've been good. Um, just trying to stay busy. I think uh, I've been trying to work on a few different projects. Um, I've been reading. A friend of mine started a. Um, well, I, I've been reading anyway, but my friend started a book club, so I got started on that, which has been fun, something to look forward to once a week. So, yeah, and it's given me another project to work on to expand my thinking and keep my mind busy on good things. Did you say so, what book you're reading? Oh, uh, no, I didn't say. Um, yeah, it's called The Parable of the Brown Girl by Christy Lauren Adams. So really looking forward to um to getting into that but yeah so it's been it's been a good couple of weeks well we hope the past couple of weeks have treated you well it's been a minute we went ahead and took a week off i was ready to talk about suicide in the black community but decided to delay that after realizing and deciding that the topic should actually be shared in conversation and not in a vacuum with just me myself and i uh, it's also a challenging conversation topic and i want to make sure that we give it the space to discuss that it deserves so we'll be ready to have that conversation in a future episode. But today we are getting into a discussion about something we may not always consider about our black experience. And that is the influence of whiteness as an actual part of our family lineage. It's no secret that most, if not all black Americans have had someone in their ancestry who was sexually assaulted by a white man, just to put it bluntly and straightforward. Personally, I've unconsciously and consciously have made an effort to not conceptualize the perpetrators of those assaults as a part of my bloodline. However, just because I don't claim that perpetrator as an ancestor does not mean that they actually are, in fact, a part of that lineage. And because of that, like most of us, we are still impacted by those acts and those traits. I don't claim to know the science behind how the tension in that particular aspect of our trauma impacts us genetically, but I imagine there is some impact. But we can definitely observe the residue of that trauma in our socially learned behaviors and patterns of thinking um, that's been passed down from generation to generation. And it's that aspect that Charlene and myself will try to unpack and conceptualize today. Yeah, I was reading somewhere that I think, 
I can't remember the exact number, but they're saying like 100,000 slaves were registered as like mulatto. And the only way that that could have happened is if their slave master uh, had sex with their slaves, um, which is crazy to think about the amount of women that had to endure and men that had to endure that assault. Right. But even people who weren't necessarily physically or sexually assaulted by their slave masters still were impacted. There's still some residue and learned behaviors that could have been passed on from right. generation to generation of slaves. Right. So one psychological impact that comes to mind when discussing slavery is this idea of learned helplessness. So I don't know if that I concept rings a bell up or how many people have heard about it, but for those of you who don't know, learned helplessness is basically a phenomenon that happens after a person repeatedly tries unsuccessfully to change their circumstances. <clears throat> they learn that they don't actually have control over the situation. And even when circumstances shift, and they're in a new environment and escape from their circumstances actually is possible, they still don't try to escape because they learn from that first situation, the first environment, that um, attempting to get out of that situation is futile. So just for some context, this idea was based on an experiment performed on dogs in the 1970s. So dogs were at first given inescapable electric shock, mm. sad, I know, where's ASPCA mm. when you come? <laughs> <laughs> the dog is then placed in a shuttle box, something called a shuttle box, which is um, a box where the others, you have to like cross a barrier or jump over a barrier to get to the other side. So the dog was then placed into this type of shuttle box where if they crossed the barrier to the other side, the shock would stop. The dog at first, mm when they start getting shocked, they run around frantically for about 30 seconds. Then eventually they just stop moving, lie down and start whining. They just give up. And then every other subsequent time that they're shocked, they just passively accept the shock because they learned from the first time, the first environment that trying to escape was um, not mm. possible. So even though they were in this new environment, um, this dog was still unmotivated to seek his freedom. However, dogs who didn't have this first trial of inescapable shock, so they were never in an environment where escape um, wasn't possible. They were just placed into this new shuttle box where they could escape. When they were shocked, they tried everything that they could to get out of that shuttle box. And they learned, like, oh, when I get shocked, I just cross, jump across this barrier and I can get free. Um, so I wonder if and how this shows up in the Black community, especially in the context of slavery. Mm -hmm. so for us, our inescapable shock was 300 years of slavery. So 300 years of maybe at first attempting to escape, um, but then after, uh, that being unsuccessful. For generations, mm -hmm. people tried many times and successfully to revolt and gain their freedom. Side note, don't let these mainstream history books fool you, because according to some historians, there were hundreds of documented slave revolts. Um, but again, unsuccessful for many of them. I wonder in what ways as a community of people this impacted the minds of the slave and what they taught their children about how to make it in the world and the probability of being able to change and impact uh, your situation. Hmm. This also kind of reminds me of the idea of Stockholm Syndrome. So Stockholm Syndrome is a psychological tendency of people 
that are held hostage to identify with and or sympathize with their captor. Mm-hmm. So if someone stole you from your family, but somehow over time, you may start feeling bad for your captor or caring about them. Um, so I think about this concept when I hear or read stories about slaves that turned against each other or ratted each other out to their master. Because in my head, I'm like, that's crazy. Why would you do that? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's undeniable that there were certain slaves that whether it was for ambition or survival, protected and were loyal to their masters. So you can't help but wonder, like, how this impacted their psyche. Like, how could they, why would they do this? Like, what was it about their environment that caused them to identify with or um, seek to protect the person that had imprisoned them? And the psyche of the children that they raised and taught to live in this world. Hmm. The good thing is that with time and education, a lot of these shackles have been broken in our community. But I think there are still some lingering impacts. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I'm curious, Bianca, I don't know if you've seen this play out or how you feel like any of these like phenomenons, concepts have impacted your clients or like communities that you've grown up in. I can't speak necessarily to clients, but um, yeah, you know, it's interesting how you how you paralleled that, especially with enslavement and like with the um, with the dogs, that was in a certain amount of time, right? A short amount of time. Imagine having that pattern for 300 years. So I appreciate you pointing that out. Um, it's kind of mind boggling to think about how we've been able to survive throughout that. But yeah, I, I can't really say in terms of clients, but I think like in just in, in general and in community, it does seem like it's a survival tactic. Um, it's a form of preservation. Right. Right. So that's essentially what what we've been doing since we, you know, since enslavement happened is trying to preserve our existence, our culture, preserve everything about who we are, despite right. in spite of efforts to eliminate us. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I I can see it as that. I think when I when I think about it in terms of more modern times, you think about the movements that have happened to build our community and make progress. Um, there there's it seems like there's always people even within the community who kind of want to go against the change. I guess in a way, or I'm not going to name any celebrity names, but there's, you know, someone who's well known in the media who seems to continually protect, try to protect the feelings of white people um, who who aren't may, may not even be impacted by the conversations that we're having. Um, you know, saying things like, oh, let's make sure there's no black supremacy or Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just making comments that are uh, uh, against or aren't helpful to the movement or making support of uh, people who are in positions of authority who um, who uphold white supremacy. And you think about that and it's like, how can you as a black person support that ideology or support people who subscribe to that? Um, I think 
this kind of speaks this uh, learned hopelessness. It speaks to that. Um, also, it's I think we said this before. It's tiresome to try to fight for your survival and it almost seems like um you know seeing how there's been so many years and so many efforts to um to fight that have seemingly not produced an ideal outcome in our support it can be very discouraging so i think that's kind of how i see it um just within the community maybe people who just don't don't have the energy maybe to to uh, or motivation to fight for yeah. our community and in all of the aspects that we have to um the opposite all of the opposition that we have yeah. yeah especially if they've seen it fail so many times before um and whatever that looks like in their community because it is after a while it gets hard to invest the energy in working towards something that seems like it's not giving you results. Um, and yeah, when I, I completely agree. I think it is in part survival, especially because thinking back to how slaves were punished for trying to revolt. Um, and then masters would go around trying to prove a point. Like, this is what, like, I'm about to punish all y'all because one of you guys tried to revolt. Um, and so in that way, it is like survival, like we need to, this is what happens when we try to fight back. If we want to survive, we need to stick with the status quo. Um, otherwise, there will be consequences. Yeah, that thing runs deep. I think there are a lot of factors that influence um, those behaviors, but definitely um, this learned helplessness um, definitely speaks to some of that, some of that mentality. Um, another aspect of, um, having, I don't know, I, I, even now I'm having a hard time saying this, like having big descendants of, of white people, um, cause I don't see myself as that. I see myself as a descendant of enslaved Africans. Um, so I'm trying to think how to put this. So another aspect of historically having white people as as a role in our development and so another aspect of that um that we may see is to not tell family business right and that's that's something that's frequently a barrier to a lot of black people getting uh obtaining access and and accessing mental health professionals and mental health support um, is this idea of don't tell anybody about, you know, family business, keep it within the family. And sometimes even within the family, it's like we don't talk about certain things, um, even within the family. Um, we just kind of like let it slide and, and keep it moving, keep it pushing. So this idea of keeping silent about the abuses uh, or excuse me, this idea about keeping silent in terms of uh, what goes on in the family and um, to protect from outsiders or even within the family that we don't discuss certain things. My conceptualization um, kind of connects with uh, keeping silent about or having to keep silent about the abuses that happened at the hands of by the hands of slave masters. Um, I wasn't there during slavery, so I don't know 
what conversations, if any conversations there were had in um, those circles or in, in those settings, but I can imagine that it's something that's not, that wasn't really shared openly about what the slave master did to, you know, your, your mother, your sister, or even your brother, your father, your uncle, um, or another person in, you know, within that, com within the community at the hands of the slave master, um, to have that trauma. I, I imagine that's not something that was openly discussed. So there was a learning, um, to be silent about those abuses. And I think that also connects with learned helplessness and, okay, well, even if I talk about it, who am I going to tell, um, who's going to advocate for me, who's going to defend me from that. I'm not even seen as a human being. So it's kind of this idea of being silenced by circumstance. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was also punishment and shame that lent itself to, um, being uh, to that silence again talking about it if that was something I mean I just I'm thinking like I can't imagine a woman going to uh, going to the I don't know what you would call it, the madam the slave master's wife and like he did this to me and there not be some repercussions because she didn't even have rights uh, she had more rights than black people but she was also a woman. So it was kind of like the social construct of the time, social construct of how things were at that time and how that influenced um, the practice of silence around trauma, the, the practice of silence around, um, around enduring those assaults. And also a sense of shame. You're being stripped of your, the agency over your, your body and having that invaded and violated and not being able to do really anything about it. Shame will put shame can put someone into a position of silence as well. And so it, it's those types of influences that built a habit of being silent about those types of afflictions and trauma. And um, I think to a certain degree, being silent about or not talking about what happened can also be a part of preserving dignity. I know in the black community, I know at least in my family anyway, in the in with a lot of the people that I I engage with, there is an understanding of the power and influence of words. And I think a lot of times seeing words as having power um, can also go to the extent of if I talk about this or if I say something or acknowledge that this happened out loud then it will actually make it more of a reality mm. um, or it will manifest itself into something right. that's greater or something that's real. So if I, we know that not talking about something doesn't mean that it didn't happen, but I think not talking about certain things for a lot of people can kind of give the illusion that it's less real um, and may feel less real because you're not addressing it. Um, and I think that may be also why there's silence within families about certain traumas that happen, even within our own family units, <clears throat> excuse me, even within our own family units. And it's an effort to protect other people. So I think maybe, I don't know if that goes with the Stockholm syndrome, Char Charlene, like not wanting to expose perpetrators, um, wanting to 
protect people's dignity or hide their their shame. I don't know if that would be in relation to a slave master, but I can certainly imagine that within the family um, dynamic with, especially if they're an elder in the family or a respected person in the family wanting to protect them, protect their image or protect, I don't know, protect their respect or their their position of authority. Uh, Yeah. 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 By not wanting to see, be seen as weak or um, like something like this could have happened to them, that they could have been in a position of powerlessness. Yeah. I could definitely see that. Especially because, especially in the black community, respect is so heavily uh, valued. Mm. Especially respecting authority figures within the family. Um, yeah, I think there is a lot of um, weight placed on needing to maintain an image so that you can maintain that respect, especially as an elder. Yeah. I think gender can play a role in that too. Like wanting to, not saying all perpetrators are men, you know, but I feel like we've been socially conditioned to, especially. Uh, well, let me be careful because I feel like this is going to get into a bigger conversation that we can have in a different episode. But even the dynamic between black women and black men um, wanting to protect um, the dignity of our brothers, the dignity of our fathers, mm-hmm. um, you know, the men in our lives. I don't know. I yeah. think the tendency to want to do that as well. Again, not saying that all perpetrators are male because there are women who are perpetrators as well. Um, but that lends to a whole different dynamic um, of a potential dynamic of shame mm-hmm. around that. But um, yeah, I, yeah. I think there is this tendency to want to respect those who are older. I think as the generations progress, there's there's changes in that family dynamic just because of how our society is evolving. But um, traditionally, in a lot of ways, there's still that that habit of silence that's preventing people from speaking out about um, experiences and traumas that they've, they've had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it's just a cycle because if you don't see anyone speaking out, then you don't think it's safe to speak out about yours. It's not normalized anymore. It's like, Oh, I'm the only one going through this. Cause I don't hear nobody else talking about it when that's not true. Yeah. I think too, we kind of have, we kind of take on the responsibility of, um, presenting ourselves we no let me try that again we we take on the responsibility we take on the responsibility of representing our community in a positive light mm-hmm. people are automatically charged with having to be perfect in order to be valued or respected we're not a, we've said this in the past we're not allowed to be human or show a human emotion or have human reactions uh, we see that a lot with, you know, in, in light of in relation to police brutality. A lot of times people who are killed at the hands of police who are unarmed and uh, aren't threatening people dig up stuff from their records to prove, you know, to somehow to somehow justify um, their death. Um, mm-hmm. That's not the case with other races. Um, you know, people look at it by case by case. But for a lot of times for black people. Um, there's an effort to justify. So it's kind of like it, that lends to the charge for black people to be perfect in order to be advocated for, to be pr- protected or to be valued. And I think that responsibility that we carry on ourselves is like you have to be a representative 
and an ambassador for your community. You have to work harder. You have to present yourself in a certain way aesthetically. You have to um, be mindful of how you speak and all of these things. So I think it's an effort to protect from any sort of dirtying of our, you know, dirtying the image of our community or dirtying the image of our families. We want to protect that dignity and we want to kind of put on this perfect, you know, picture perfect image um, so that it doesn't bring the community down or bring mm. the family down. And that's exhausting. What's that? I said, and that's so exhausting. It's so yeah. hard trying to do that all the time, every day. Yeah. Yeah. I just see there's there is um, perhaps a somewhat of an exception to the silence part. Um, and a lot of times it's like don't don't tell family business to anybody unless, you know, you go to your pastor or <laughs> someone in the church, you know, that someone who's trusted, someone who's connected to God, um, you know, someone who's in the community, which I don't I think that's a good resource. And a, um, it can be a good resource in a lot of ways for you to go to a spiritual leader. Um, to share those things. And there are good counselors in the church. At the same time, there's a lot of, there's still a lot of challenges within the church dynamic, um, unfortunately. But I mean, you know, people, human people are people regardless of their position and their title. So a lot of times, you know, people may go to a counselor and there be some sort of, there can be some sort of dynamic um, issue involved. There can be an abuse of power involved. Um, also not, I mean, this isn't the case with every church counselor, but not all counselors are trained to be able to respond appropriately to certain challenges that people are facing. Um, and that's why there's a need for people who are mental health professionals who do have training in certain, um, areas, uh, concerning mental health. So I think that's important to note, too, that while counselors who may be church affiliated are helpful in a lot of ways, especially if you're seeking you know, spiritual counsel, mm-hmm. they may not necessarily have the training to provide support for mental health support. Yeah, so true. So true. That is so true. I know at, um, you and I both went to seminary and I remember hearing that again and again from pastors or pastors that were coming to seminary to get training um, on for the psychology piece of it, and even people training to become pastors. We would talk about that all the time, about how they feel very ill-equipped to deal with a lot of the issues that people come to them with, because it's not their background, it's not their training. Um, and some of them seek that training independently, but not all of them do. And, and honestly, it's not their, it's not in their role to do that. But unfortunately, yeah. it's about community. Um, it's not always the first line of defense to go to therapy that it falls it falls back on um, people in the church. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know what the solution is for that because it feels kind of unfair to expect pastors to play that dual role. Right. Other than, I guess, hiring more therapists in the church. I don't know how that works. Yeah, actually, there are churches that now have, um, you know, setups where they do have mental health professionals who are part of um, who are part of church resources. Um, There are Christian uh, or faith based 
if you're not Christian, there are faith-based facilities that provide mental health services, people who are trained and licensed mental health professionals. Um, so I think it's, it, again, our, our society and our community is evolving. And I think that, you know, fortunately, people who are kind of at the epicenter of healing um, mm. are now expanding and dispersing that responsibility mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to others. Mm-hmm. And, that are more non-traditional or, um, you know, what has been seen as, as acceptable for, for so many years. Yeah. And I hope more churches take, take that on, but I know it costs money. Mm-hmm. It's all about, it's all yeah, about the money. It does. <laughs> it does. <laughs> so Charlene, I'm wondering, in addition to like, you know, having this residue of, you know, being silenced about our pain. We talked about a helplessness. I wonder what would you say are some other, or what is another way that, um, that, that whiteness in our lineage has influenced our kind of the practices and habits that we have. Yeah. We kind of talked about this last episode a little bit, um, this idea of internalized racism, but it has so many different levels to it. At the heart of internalized racism is, um, according to Dr. DeGruy, the belief that white and all things associated with whiteness are superior, mm. and that black and all things associated with blackness are inferior. This internalization happened for so many multifaceted reasons. Um, one, being surrounded by white people who told us we were inferior. And then also seeing that the only people that have power are white people. Um, And then wanting to identify with that power, like we talked about with like the Stockholm syndrome, wanting to identify with that power and then be more like them, Um, just to name like a couple ways. So Dr. DeGruy goes on to say that through the centuries of slavery and the decades of institutionalized oppression that followed, many African-Americans have, in essence, been socialized to be something akin to white racists. So not only are we conditioned to hate ourselves and our own bodies by being in this oppressive environment for hundreds of years, but also conditioned to hate those of our community as well. And we were even rewarded for these covert and overt betrayals um, of each other Mm. through whether acknowledgement or being like promoted in the plantation or given status by the Mm -hmm. slave master we were in some ways subconscious subconsciously and in other ways outright coerced into adopting the slave master's value system Mm. and as a result we learned to value ourselves through the white man's lens Mm. so again thankfully over the years we've become more and more woke to this intrinsic value that we have as a community and have become more and more unashamedly accepting of ourselves and our culture. But I still find that these ideas can creep up and in unexpected and sometimes unsettling ways. Mm. But for me, I've been in pretty diverse spaces for like the last decade of my life. Um, But whenever I find myself back in primarily white spaces, I notice this same like tendency to adopt these white American values and standards and it's so annoying like holding myself to these standards and values when I'm in these spaces in some ways it does feel like that survival instinct like kind of like what we talked about and then in other ways it just feels like 
a subconscious reflex. Um, it takes such like intentionality to reprogram my mind mm. from growing up in this like predominantly white suburban yeah. neighborhood of like wanting to fit in, having to act and be like the other white kids or whatever. It, like takes yeah. so much intentionality to be like, no, I don't have to adopt these standards. Like I can just be myself, um, and they can <laughs> they can accept it or not. Yeah. What about? Well, I was gonna say. Because we both grew up in Missouri <laughs> and mm-hmm. in places in Missouri that weren't, uh, the, I don't know. Did you see, a, there weren't a lot of black people. Were there a lot of black people where you were? I don't know. I would not say a lot, no. Yeah, so we both grew up in, in towns that were mostly white and really in the system of how things functioned were governed by whiteness. Um, so I, I, I feel you on that about having to really work through challenging, you know, ideologies that even, I mean, it's not like I was told for me, it's not like I was totally, you know, I totally subscribe to whiteness or white ideals, but, um, I think as I've grown up and, you know, I've, as I've traveled and lived in different places, realizing there are certain parts of how I saw myself, how I saw my community, though I love my community, I love Black people. Um, there are a lot of things that I, a lot of perspectives that I had that were heavily influenced by white, by ideas mm-hmm. and fueled by um, whiteness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the case for most people. I don't know if anybody is totally untouched by that um, yeah. when we have have so many influences in the media and and in our education, especially. But um, I did reach a point where I was like, I'm I'm done code switching. Like <laughs> I I'm not I'm not um, going to try to adhere to the standard of uh, of whiteness and and see that as um, achieve, achieving that as being a point of value or um, accomplishment. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a risk even in that because I don't think I realize the consequences of being myself in white spaces uh, because mm-hmm. you get pegged as a stereotype and people respond to you in a certain way, how they view you and treat you. Um, you know, still as lesser than. Yeah. So um, it's kind of it's kind of like to to live in your authenticity as a black person comes with major consequences. And some people will say, well, that's for anybody. Okay, maybe, but I think <laughs> for um, for us specifically, there's like a, there are years of training um, for how people perceive us. Um, and how people treat us just because of our cultural background um, and being black American. And granted, we can't control how other people treat us, but it does have an impact on how we view ourselves and, and kind of, you know, dealing with the microaggressions that we have to deal with um, regardless of, of our code switching level and ability. Um, so it's, it's just interesting 
because I have felt that exhaustion of code switching, but I've also felt the exhaustion of being myself and then having to deal with people's ignorance and how they respond to my authentic self. Yeah. I think about, I think about Hollywood too, you know, how for so many years, award shows like the Grammys or the Oscars or whatever, how those have been kind of the standard of success and outside of, outside of that industry, um, you know, certain schools that you go to, where you get your degree from, is still governed by that being a standard set by white people to say, well, if you made it at a, a PWI, then you must have a better education or, you know what I mean? Things like that. And I think it's going to take some time for us to kind of debunk that and um, work toward challenging what we see as successful yeah and redefining that yeah yeah because yeah it's not just white people that think going to a pwi is like the epitome of success like black people sometimes feel that way too you said like this internalization of this idea that like being in white spaces is better being in institutions that um are won by run by white people are intrinsically better and higher quality um which is not always the case, but it's, it is, it's like what you said, years of practice learning how to discriminate against a certain mm-hmm. group of people. Um, and even ways that we've learned to discriminate against our own people yeah, um, and look down on our own people and devaluing what, uh, what we have to offer as a community. It's hard. It's hard to see sometimes. Yeah. And even if, you know, even when we do find ourselves meeting those qualifications of success, it's like a lot of times you get the message, well, you're the exception. Mm-hmm. And even though we know that's not true, it can be, it can take a lot of work to not give in to that belief that, oh, yeah, I am the exception. Like mm-hmm. other, black people, other black people aren't like this. Oh. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's even harder if you're not around other black people all the time. Um, But that's why it's so important to be able to see black people who are who have have excelled in their field of work, Mm -hmm. um, regardless of what that is. And that not being an exception that needs to be normalized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And even thinking about even if that's true, like, why is it that more black people aren't don't have the opportunity to excel? Like, not that they can't, but if there are more of a certain demographic of people excelling in a certain area, what is it that's holding these other people back? Because biologically, we're not that different. Um, Like my brain is basically the same as your brain in a lot of ways. So if I'm having a hard time. Like, what is it? What is what is what are the policies? Like, what are the structures that aren't allowing me to succeed in that mm-hmm. same way that I have the opportunity to succeed? Mm-hmm. Um, even if it, I am like the exception. Is like, well, what policies and institutions are in place that are holding the rest of my people back? Yeah. Even in our, uh, even in the teaching styles, that can be a barrier. How we learn and how how things are taught. And again, like you said, it's not necessarily for lack of ability, but for lack of opportunity and access mm-hmm. um, at home. 
you know, that's a generational thing. I think um, this is going off topic a little bit, but when you think about generational wealth, uh, it's not just about money. That's about uh, knowledge as well. You know, if you, if you are someone who grew up in a household where, um, you know, family didn't have access to a, a particular amount of knowledge and education um, for whatever reason, that's going to be a different feel. Even if you are, even if you're working hard and, and you have more access, that's still going to be different than someone who's white, who's had, um, a, you know, family for generations who have had access to um, certain levels of education. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. That was a little diversion, but I was just thinking that as you were saying. <laughs> yeah, intergenerational stuff is very real. It's very yeah. real impact. Yeah. I do want to present another idea, and this may be a little far left. <laughs> um, but I'm just kind of processing, kind of processing some things and thinking about, you know, our topic today about um yeah. What? So I'm here for it. Get it off your chest. Okay. Um, so from family systems point of view, I'm just thinking about how having someone who is white in your family background influences um, your behavior. I know we've talked about it in terms of transgenerational or just like um you know, we have talked about how that certain behaviors and thought patterns have been passed down and we understand that, but I'm just thinking from like a family systems point of view, going back to someone who was in enslavement and may have been a result, their their birth was a result of an assault from a white slave master and how even if they weren't a parent, necessarily in terms of being a nurturer or taking on a parental what we would consider to be a parental role that's still a parent you know what I mean in the in the sense that that they still taught us things and passed on things to us yeah well okay so I'm trying to think so if if someone was born as a result of a slave master assaulting an enslaved African and even if that's I don't know I don't know the family dynamics but even if that slave master totally disowned that child that's still their child you know what I mean like that is still their father that's still their parent and I just think about um what that does what that would have done for their attachment patterns. And what I mean by that, so there are different attachment patterns. So for the attachment theory, Ainsworth and Bowlby were two of the pioneers behind um, understanding the emotional bond that happens when during a person's upbringing with their parent and how that parental relationship impacts how they how they form relationship attachments um, moving forward, like with other adults or with romantic partners. So that's Ainsworth and Bowlby, I believe are the two 
for the two pioneers. But um, so basically there's different with this theory, there's different types of attachment. Um, I won't get too deep into it, but there's an attachment where it's like totally disconnected from emotion. Um, there's an attachment that's well, first, there's an attachment that's secure. That means that you have a good understanding of uh, a good perception of the realities of your upbringing and the relationship with your parents. Um, you worked through, you know, any negative feelings you have toward your parents. There's an attachment where you're disconnected from emotions, where you have a hard time feeling like um, experiencing emotion. And when you're around people who have um, have strong emotions, you get overwhelmed by them. Um, it's difficult for you to develop good relationships with other people. Um, there's another attachment where um, you where someone may be super clingy um, and they just want to they form a, a relationship really quickly or they get attached to someone really quickly um, and then there's one where it's like oh and that person's also afraid of maybe afraid of abandonment um, and there is another one where feeling like um, like you're not worthy of being loved um, and so you kind of distance yourself from people and it's hard for you to develop long-term strong um, relationships anyway so those are different types of attachment and I just kind of think about what attachment injuries may have happened um, for generations of people who were identified as quote-unquote mulatto who were um, you know interracial who were the result whose birth was a result of an assault um, I haven't done research on that specifically in terms of people who, you know, the effects of that. But I just think about that, like um, the challenge with identity that comes with having a, one, parent, one parent being a perpetrator on another parent and you being a, a result of that. And I just wonder how that has an impact on Pat relationship building patterns that are passed throughout generations. Mm-hmm. Even yeah. with your family. Yeah, no, I think, like, yeah, like you said, because that happens even today, like, um, and I'm sure there is research that we could do to look into it, because now that you're talking about it, I am curious. I'm like, that would have unimaginable impact on the attachment and, like, I'm thinking even like, do the kids even know where they where they came from? Like, because I'm sure mm-hmm. even back to the shame piece, I'm thinking, was that even something that was talked about? Did they even know? Did they have to make um, assumptions? Did they pretend like it was one of the other slaves' kids? Like, I wonder mm. what pieces they had to reconstruct on their own to give background into their like upbringing. Um, mm. Yeah, the ways that it. And even just you talking about attachment, I'm just thinking about all the ways in which relationships were hindered um, within enslaved people, like being constantly torn from one another, being like bought and sold, being separated mm-hmm. from family. Mm-hmm. Not even just the attachment between the white slave master and the, his child, but all mm-hmm. the ways in which relationships were um, ruptured or uh, cut off because of that, um, because of the way that they treated the enslaved people 
that's like that yeah that sounds like a whole other podcast because that sounds so we could get into yeah. so many different layers to that because that's yeah. that run deep. we um, may have to do a follow-up yeah for sure yeah we can actually like read up on stuff because there is like there are kids even now that are um um what's it called product of rape and like what i'm sure they've done studies to talk about for sure deserve their how that's impacted their ability to build relationships and just kids that have been through trauma in general yeah yeah let's do it we're gonna have a follow-up we're gonna do follow-up because uh we're already at an hour and it takes a long time for me to edit so i feel like this (laughs) (laughs) this is gonna be another episode you can look forward to we're gonna do a follow-up episode about how attachment plays a part in this as well so look out for part two Well, now we're going to move into our affirmation for the day. Like we've mentioned before, we always like to end our podcast with an affirmation, just something positive to take away and to go back into your world with. Um, So you guys can just repeat after me. I am worthy of love. I am worthy of love. I am worthy of respect. I am worthy of respect. I am worthy of safety and security. I am worthy of safety and security. And I will strive today to offer these things to myself. I will strive today to offer these things to myself. Well, thank you so much, guys, for tuning in today. It's been real. We'll see you guys next time on another episode of All Shades of Black Podcast. Yeah. And as always, be blessed. Be blessed.